The idea yeah. that back training can't get you in trouble, because that was the narrative that I was bought into. Yeah. It was it was just seen as this ultimate hedge. Like no matter what your strength training program looks like, it will be as good or better if you just throw in more posterior chain work. Can't <laughs> go wrong, right? Strong back. But then you get all these people where like their lats have squeezed all the air out of the back of their rib cage, and then they have absolutely no ability to rotate because they can't expand either side of the back of their rib cage. They cannot get their arms above their head. Because again, you need air in the back of the rib cage to give your lats a fulcrum to lengthen over. You can get yourself into a lot of bother. That was Angus Bradley, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're curious what one of my top five paradigm shifts has been in training and performance the last few years, I want to answer of those might surprise you. One of those shifts has been uh, moving to herbalism and herbal supplementation as an important part of my total health and performance regimen. You could say I got into it much in the same way I got into perception and reaction-based agility work instead of emphasizing canned, cone, and ladder-based agility work or 505s or pro-agilities. And that was really through being open-minded and making a shift towards natural methods, organic methods versus more manufactured methods and, and ideas. And after really years of drinking way too much caffeine, taking too much pre-workout and seeing my ability to harness adrenaline suffer as a result, amongst other reasons, I gave herbalism a shot Uh, and specifically through the herbs of Lost Empire Herbs. Uh, I replaced all but creatine in my supplementation routine. From my first dosage of, uh, it was the Phoenix formula, it was my first herb I used, I noticed substantial results immediately. I saw improvements in my strength and power outputs. And you'll see other coaches who also will recommend um, herbs for performance, things like Shiliagit. And Logan Christopher, CEO of the company, calls what they do performance herbalism, which means they focus on herbs that are so potent and powerful, that means you feel a difference when you take them. This isn't like the Jinko Biloba, the low-grade herbs you're seeing in capsule form at the local drugstore. These are performance herbs. They're 100% natural with no additives, chemicals, or colorings, and you can get extensive information on each herb or formula you purchase there. Lost Empire Herbs offers a 365-day money-back guarantee, so you can get these herbs virtually risk-free. They are founded by three brothers interested in athletic performance, and I'm really happy to have Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show. So if you're interested in the product and some of the products specifically that I use in my own training and performance regimen, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly to check out those herbs and get 15% off your purchase. So again, head on over to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly for 15% off. All right, let's get on to the show. Welcome to another show. As we've talked about uh, several shows in the past, and then this is also a big interest of mine, is how do we manage uh, different athlete types, uh, elastic or concentric, if you want to use those terms, in terms of uh, how much weightlifting are we giving these athletes? How much are we loading these athletes? And beyond that question... It's important to ask, how are we loading them when we do choose to put load on these athletes? The second portion of that might be the thing that perhaps we don't think about quite as often when it comes to uh, how we're moving athletes through the weight room experience in conjunction with everything else they're doing, uh, whether we're working with track athletes, uh, field athletes, court athletes, uh, whatever we're doing, we want to give the athlete, one, just the, the optimal uh, amount of loading, but 
too, we want to make sure that we're not bringing up unnecessary compensations as a result of the lifting uh, practices we're doing. Um, we've had other guests talk about this type of principle, and that's why I'm really excited to have Angus Bradley on the show today. Angus is a strength coach and podcast host from Sydney, Australia. Uh, he co-hosts the High Performance Podcast with his brother, Oscar. And after focusing primarily on weightlifting for the first half of his career, uh, Angus now finds himself spending much time outside of his lane and trying to identify the principles that really uh, transcend all human movement, trying to find those master keys that define movement across multiple disciplines. Uh, like many guests on the show, Angus has been well-educated in the compression and expansion training ideals proliferated by Bill Hartman that are absolutely pushing our industry forward. Angus is frequently sharing next-level knowledge from his social media platform and his podcast, and he works for, and he personally works as a coach with a diverse crowd, from strongman to surfing and everything in between. On the show today, Angus is going to talk about squatting and hinging from a ribcage and pelvic floor perspective in terms of how uh, shape change can occur when we load athletes a particular way, as well as unwanted shape changes and compensations within the body, and especially uh, where elastic type athletes uh, or narrow infrasternal angle athletes are going to be very prone to. So again, we tend to work working with a lot of athlete populate. We as coaches work with um, oftentimes more than one type of athlete population. And so this is really important stuff. He's going to talk about uh, how we can load and train um, these athletes who are more elastic with a narrow uh, rib angle versus more muscular driven athletes who tend to have a wider infrasternal angle and what that means in terms of putting load on the athlete, compressing the athlete, what nuances are we looking for in the lift itself? Uh, what are we looking for when um, basically we see that the lift, they're getting stronger in a lifting program, but now it's not because muscles are getting more powerful. It's just because maybe they're changing the shape of their body to hit the lift. Uh, Angus is just brilliant with this stuff. He had a lot of um, points as well as it pertains to uh, me and my own training and my own athletic type. So obviously I enjoyed this podcast a ton because I learned a lot about myself. But anyways, this is one of those shows that I wish I would have listened to myself 15 years ago. And it was really enjoyable talking to Angus about all things lifting, compensation patterns, pressures, shape change, uh, and a lot of other knowledge that you'll find really helpful and important. All right. With that said, let's get on to episode 249 with Angus Bradley. All right, Angus, it's awesome to have you, man. I do, before we get started, I have a question for you. And that's, um, you know, all like the the Instagram pictures and the artwork for your podcast. Like, how do you guys come up with that stuff? If anyone's seen your podcast, High Performance, how do you guys come up with the, the different pictures for the week or the guest? That's all Oscar, um, my brother. So, I don't know. We just, we, we like to dive into serious topics and things like that, but we like to sort of go there in a really casual and I guess maybe a little bit of a humorous way and we've always sort of just enjoyed we grew up playing Grand Theft Auto Vice City and all those games and I think there was a bit of a Miami Vice sort of theme come back in like the online space a lot of people getting back into fluoro and and that sort of a vibe so it was just Oscar and we just commissioned an artist and we're like how do you sort of see us and then that's what we got sent back <laughs> And then it was just two dudes with their shirts off and we're like, can you put some girls in the background? And he was like, yeah, sure. Uh, and then that's sort of how we ended up with the thing. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I feel like I'm I'm boring. I just have the same banner, you know, just guests, you know, same same text. Uh, you guys always have like yeah. a different piece of art for the different uh, the different guests and stuff. I always love we that. We try to pride ourselves on our irreverence. Like, I think one of the things 
that always annoyed me about the fitness industry is people have always had that survivorship bias of like, you know, you've got to spend a certain amount of time in the industry. You've got to be respectful. You've got to wait in line to ask questions and stuff like that. And we feel like we can just tear down the walls a little bit quicker for like, nah, this whole thing's like, it's a bit of a joke, really. It's just like a bit of sport and that like, you know, let's just sort of break down some of those barriers, not take ourselves so seriously. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I really appreciate the humor that and yeah, that humor and irreverence in what you guys are doing. It's it's needed, especially when there's so many. I'm sure we're going to get to on the show today or like we were talking about before, like things like the posterior chain, like you got to get, oh. you know, and, and just there. it's almost like everything or uh, Adarian Barr, my track mentor, said to me, like everything your track coach told you to do, just do the opposite. Like, <laughs> and so I, I'm not saying it's like that for everything in fitness, but I think there's so many things we just don't know yet. It's it's nice to have a humorous yeah. a, a humorous attitude with it. And especially because like we always get told to not be emotional and to not take things personally. But I think we do because, you know, we think of those ideas as our own and stuff like that. And it just it helps a lot have some of these tougher conversations if you can just be a bit more humorous about it. Otherwise, it does feel really serious when you're like you're using your body the wrong way. Like that's that's a gnarly conversation. So we can have a bit of a joke about it. It just helps like it eliminates some of that extra baggage that makes these things extra uncomfortable. Yeah, and maybe that would be a good segue to the first question because I, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. I've heard people say all the time in sports performance or strength and conditioning, okay, uh, with young athletes, the foundation of athletic development or something linking to this is being able to squat, hinge, push, pull. You know, we all need to do these things. Um, and so uh, something about that, I mean, I'm like, all right, can you sprint? Can you jump? Like, can you crawl? Can you swing, climb? You know, all these, I, I feel like these skills are really more... But um, anyways, I I had a I had a post myself on Instagram where I was kind of had my own version of I'm like well maybe there's more pronation supination but I I wouldn't actually even agree with my own post necessarily but anyways I'm curious what your take is on the idea of squat hinge pushing pulling these being foundational uh, core movements of athletic performance and if not how do we look at it all? Yeah, so I think because people. When we use the term like a squat or a hinge or a push or a pull, we're trying to categorize human movement. And there's an implication that if you're doing a squat, you're training a certain muscular strategy. And if you're training a hinge, it is a different muscular strategy. But I think due to just like, you know, the SNC world has always sort of looked to powerlifting and been like, well, you're the squat guys. Can you tell us how to squat? But the thing like that is like the, the idea of a squat for a power lifter is like, is the barbell on your back? Like that's all a squat is to them. Whereas in the S and C world, the squat is, and, and it's like when the bars on your back, it doesn't matter what sort of a muscular strategy you use. It's just about going down, breaking parallel and then coming back up. But there's a certain sort of quality that we're trying to capture as an S and C coach when we prescribe a squat or a hinge and to the point where it's no longer about like where the bar is on your body, but it's like, what is the muscular strategy? Uh, at least in my eyes, like at the thorax and at the pelvis versus the, using squat, hinge, push, pull. It's sort of more indicative of what's going on at the limbs. And it's not that that's not important, but I think you want to look at the strategy most proximally, like that's the biggest influence on human movement, controlling your center of mass. That's how we end up moving our limbs through space most effectively. Um, so and just to like really put it clearly, like 
the two different opposing strategies as I see them when it comes to the thorax and the pelvis is you, it doesn't squat. Like the thorax doesn't squat. It's just, it doesn't hinge. It just compresses, uh, compresses, goes in and expands. So it exhales and it inhales is I guess like the easiest way to visualize that compression and expansion. But compression and expansion, it doesn't always mean breathing because uh, obviously you can do, like you can feel an exhalation strategy but then have your mouth closed like we would still consider that like an exhalation movement just but it's just like a nice idea of like something you can connect to those strategies does that make sense because we'll go into after it how a particular way of coaching the squat can make it all all the same strategy as your hinge yeah um i mean i i know where you're heading and i think when we do get into this stuff regarding to like the pressure the thorax inhaled and exhaled i've had a lot of uh, guests on talking about this and I sometimes I get confused so I'll let you know but from what my understanding is more so than thinking of the squat as we think of like a powerlifter squat we're thinking of what's happening um in the squat pattern maybe on the level of yes, the thorax exactly so really we're trying it, to eliminate redundancy yeah. in in the training protocol Sorry, go on. Yeah, so it's maybe from a basic level. And a plus two, I think it's it could be triggering to a lot of people like, oh, what do you mean you don't want to squat? What do you mean you don't want to hinge? It's, but you're saying more it's yeah. a squat pattern, hinge pattern, but that doesn't mean that the bar is in a certain location. It just means no, this no. is this is what's happening to the thorax and the pelvis on this level. So let's get a working definition of the squat and the hinge because I think you've had Pat Davidson on and I'm a real big fan of his squatty squats yes, and hingey hinges concept. Where, where I'm not a fan of it is he has not made an effort to come up with language that the community is going to accept because people are so attached to the way that they squat that they think that Pat's trying to change the way they squat. And it's like, no, he's just calling what you do as a squat a deadlift. Like you can keep doing it that way because that's successful in your competition. But in his model, it's like it's not different enough from a hinge to actually call it a squat. So in this whole compression expansion model, obviously it's Bill's model, but then Pat is the one who's been talking about these squatty squats. What I define, or what we look at a squat as is just pure vertical translation of a pelvis. Pelvis just dropping straight down in space. And there may be deviations from that because usually our limbs move in arcs, but just the dominant movement is definitely just vertical down. And then the hinge, it is pushing the pelvis back horizontally in a straight line so now we have a much more clear definition of what these things look like at least on a surface level and now how does that strategy then differ between a squatty squat and a hingy hinge um, from a pressure management strategy so in a squat to get your pelvis to start at the top in relatively full hip extension and descend all the way to parallel and then all the way down onto your ankles the majority of time throughout that movement as you're heading down, the pelvis is going to be increasing in volume. Or the entire thorax will be inhaling. Pelvic floor will be descending, creating a lot of space in that pelvic bowl for the abdominal viscera to come down. And this is where it gets murky, right? Because when you reach parallel in that squat, that's when the femurs are about as IR as they're going to get in the squat. So you actually midway through that squat, the pelvic floor does have a yielding action and ascends a little bit. If you can control it, you'll see a lot of real expanded people just free fall through that zone. Do you know the people I'm talking about? And then once they get to the bottom, they're back into that 
expansion strategy and you'll notice a lot of springy people they're really comfortable hanging out there they'll have to sort of bounce and compress yeah. their way out of there like they have to develop a bit of compression uh sort of doing that and now let's talk about the hinge oh sorry just one last thing on the squat the squat being an expansion dominant strategy we talk about like a big emphasis on that eccentric component it has a big counter movement so all sort of counter movements are things that we describe as expansive expansion strategy in nature the hinge is just the opposite so the 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 most stereotypical hinge we can think of is just like a conventional deadlift starting from the floor so we have no counter movement it is a purely compression action and all you are doing is just extending your hips from there you're just increasing pressure uh, and decreasing space in the pelvis and the thorax so it is a pure compression movement we have the opposite strategy of the rib cage the pelvic floor and like the thoracic diaphragm and now what you're probably realizing now that we've just given a kind of a clear definition of what a squat or what an expansion strategy looks like at the pelvis and the thorax and then what a hinge strategy looks like at the pelvis and the thorax you can see that a lot of the ways we coach different squat variations they're actually like a mishmash of all these compression and expansion strategies and like so i've just said that a hinge or a conventional deadlift is this pure compression strategy but if I take a bunch, throw a bunch of expansion concepts on top of that, like say I get you in a trap bar deadlift, so I've just ER'd uh, your arms and things like that. And if I make it like a touch and go deadlift, so we we don't, we have a big yielding moment beforehand, we just tap on the ground and then we compress off. I've taken this pure compression strategy and I've laid a bunch of expansion strategies in there. Same as the squat. And now this is what powerlifters have done to a squat because you can imagine like powerlifters, we all know that they're terrible at yielding, like they're just stiff as bricks. Um, so they've taken their squat and they've turned it, they've taken as much ER out of it as possible and they've tried to distill it just to those sort of IR qualities as much as they can we'll, while still adhering to the rules of their squat. Like they still have to break parallel. So their hips can't move just back. Their hips have to move a little bit down but you'll notice that powerlifters in their squat, their hips are moving more back than down. They are spending more time trying to create compression and decrease volume in the thorax and the pelvis so that they don't just fall straight to the ground because that would be the worst thing ever for them. Yeah. What What do you think about this? Uh, so hopefully we'll unpack that a little bit as we go along. Um, actually, before I ask you this question, could you just give me a quick, uh, you mentioned athletes who are uh, compressed and expanded and I know that'll be something I imagine you touch on quite a bit so before we get too much further just a quick definition on uh, someone who is a compressed presentation versus an expanded presentation so the easiest way to see it is like have you heard of the whole infrasternal angle thing uh, yeah and uh, Kyle Dobbs just mentioned it on a couple podcasts ago so everyone hopefully who listen to that maybe heard it but I, I definitely going through it again would be great because I know a lot of people and it, it, it kind of can be like the biggest thing ever but it's also then it's kind of like soma types. Like it kind of is like what you are is what you are. And like eventually you'll get to the point where you probably don't need to actually measure infrasternal angles because the stereotypes are so clear. It's, uh, it's pretty hard to get fooled. So like a big power lifter, like you just, your te- stereotypical power lifter walks like a fridge, does a lot of bench press, does a lot of squats, does a lot of deadlifts. They're, 
up just below their sternum where their ribs come apart, all those false ribs and stuff like that. They will be, I've heard a few different numbers as far as like what's neutral or what's considered like not a wide and not a narrow ISA. But let's say beyond 90 degrees, I've also heard 108.8 degrees because that's two helixes. <laughs> but most of these people are like quite wide. Um, and those people will be compressed anterior to posterior. And then you've got your narrow infrasternal angles and they're just the opposite. Their false ribs are really close together. Uh, and we call those people expanded anterior to posterior. And typically these will be like people who have a lot of movement options, people who are very floppy, like girls who are like ballerinas and things like that. Like they strike me as your typical narrows or your jumping athletes and yep, stuff right, like that. Right here, um, Raise, hand raised. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you're, you're, you are just looking at you. You know that you're a narrow. But then every now and then like females, if they have a baby and it like sits really high hmm. in their thorax, that can sort of open up their ribs. So you do get some females who are like, oh, you've, you've got to be a narrow. But then after they have a kid, they, they are turned into this wide by the baby. And like these things are strategic uh, evolutions or sort of developments. Like I guess a modern example would be like a linebacker, right? Or like a what is in the NFL for guys who are sort of at the line of scrimmage. Oh, oh lineman, yeah. They, they don't want to be rotated easily, right? So for them, not having movement options and being ultra compressed anterior to posterior, it makes them harder to rotate and shift out of the way. So for those people, the compression strategy suits them. And then for like, you know, someone who needs to bend and rotate, you can, if you have a thorax that's shaped like a sausage, it's just a shape that rotates really well. But it's a bad, if you expand a linebacker too much, you know, maybe yeah. you could give that guy too many movement options. So it kind of depends what you're trying to do. There's also some great research on this. I think it's, it's torso integration theory or something like that it's a paper i heard zach couples mentioned and he sort of talks about these two different axial skeleton shapes a sort of it's whether you're a wide or a narrow kind of is dependent on the climate of your ancestors or that's like a really hmm. big factor so that compressed axial skeleton shape is a really really good shape for maintaining heat uh, and it's a really bad shape for sort of dispersing heat. So a lot of people mm. who live in those Arctic climates and things like that uh, often have more compressed skeletons, whereas like versus your sub-Saharan Africans who need to have that expanded uh, sort of shape, which is uh, has a high surface area, I think. So it's a bit better for dispersing heat and things like that. So I think when people hear compression, they think, oh, bad, and then, expansion might be good or maybe people have less emotional attachments to those words but <clears throat> i think that's one of the biggest issues with communicating all this stuff people always say like oh you're just compressed is a bad thing it's just like no it's just a thing it's helped people survive cold climates it's helped linebackers do their job it's just whether or not you need more of those linebacker eskimo qualities or do we need more of these sub-saharan bendy joel qualities in this person <laughs> Yeah. And then developing, obviously, our strength training protocol because people, a lot of people, you hear athletes being like, oh, like, you know, I used to have this really springy athlete. I used to feel really springy and then I started lifting heavy weights mm -hmm. and I became more compressed or they don't necessarily say it like that. They'll say yeah. I lost my spring. Whereas, you know, my thinking is that if we start to strip away some of these, let's call them accidental compression strategies that we've been layering on our supposed expansion strategies that we've been meaning to chase the whole time, um, we will not have these unintentional negative effects on athletic uh, performance in certain athlete groups. Yeah, I, I love that you mentioned like with the ISA too. I, I was on um, Jake Tura, uh, who has a podcast, Jacked Athlete, a lot of vertical jump. We talk vertical jump and with Jake, 
yeah, Jake had said he notices a lot of those good jumpers were narrow infrasternal angles. And I remember yeah. when I was, uh, I was, I think he asked me about it. I was like, yeah, I think you're about right. But the more I thought about that after the show, I'm like, yeah. Like They're that. expanded. They're like a soccer ball yeah. that's ready to bounce off the ground versus your, your wide ISAs. If you squeezed all the air out of a, a soccer ball and threw it at the ground, <laughs> it wouldn't like, it's good. <laughs> like, that's just, a good, that's a good analogy for that actually. Like if I, so if I have a narrow ISA, I basically have a blown up soccer ball in my yeah ribs. you're inflated that can you're bounce. ready to bounce yeah. ah yeah and if i that's don't that's how i view supination and pronation as well like supination is the inflated ball and pronation is that ball as it's smushing into the ground because i think that's a hard strategy to view as a compressive strategy because pronation feels like such a stretch at the bottom of the foot but that's actually our body when it's driving hardest into the ground interesting I've, uh, yeah, it, one of the things that Darian Barr, this is like one of the things that I never actually got to work with him in person and like check out, but he had a device that almost allowed him to like pump up his in- inhalation more. Like it was like a little respiratory yeah. device where he carried more air as he was, you know, doing whatever. And he was like deadlifting with it and deadlifting massive weight, which that makes sense with the deadlift, I guess, if it's the, I guess, the, it, like, usually like people are better pullers who have the, or deadlifters who have the narrow ISA. Versus, well, they got air to squeeze out of them. Gotcha, gotcha. So the more air you have, the more that you can like. Um, I, I, I'm at loss for words the exact mechanisms because I would plug yeah. into the, like lifts and jumps. But generally, in that pulling action, you have more. Air, you need more air in the pull when your hips are back versus a squat. You don't need as much. Yeah. So the squat, the pull off the ground, like it's it's still a relatively exhaled position like hip flexion is regarded as an inhalation strategy but then when you're in about that sort of 90 degrees of hip flexion that's when the pelvic floor has started to reascend there so you're in a little bit of a relatively inhaled position in an overall exhalation strategy there so that's why people like will sort of stand up get their air in there and then go down into that position because ah. even though we're in hip flexion, it's still a position where we're going to have a mutated sacrum and the guts are going to be trying to ascend. And like you feel it when you deadlift, right? Air just wants to come out of your mouth yeah. as soon as you deadlift. Like Pat Davis always talks about, like you never hear tennis players inhale as they <laughs> hit the uh, ball with the racket. And it's the same in the deadlift. Like you're never going to hear anyone be like off the floor in a deadlift. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> You would just fold. It is pretty funny how little we think about the, that that quality because yeah anyone who goes down to deadlift like try inhaling all your hair first or something and then do it yeah, versus in, inhale as you're going down into a squat and it's perfect <laughs> like exhaling before you go into the squat is helpful but then as you're descending inhaling hmm. can really facilitate uh those hip flexion mechanics by expanding the pelvis driving the guts down into them and opening that sort of that thing up so does that differ now than a powerlifter squat like would a like because they hinge the squat yeah. more and so they wouldn't exactly want to do it probably, right okay cool now and, and they will never they will go down and like i said so it's a generally an inhalation strategy but they've put the bar down lower on their back so they're gonna hinge forward more which is a little bit compressive and they're just gonna go down so we've talked about how the full range of a squat you have the pelvic pelvic floor descends the pelvis expands and then when you're halfway down that's the hardest point of the squat so the body starts to ascend that pelvic floor to give you some compression to help you manage the pressure the pel- the powerlifters really really tap into that 
they don't want to go beyond that. They just want to increase that pressure as soon as the pressure's as much as they can, that's when they turn it around. Whereas to make it a yielding action, which is what we want for our athletes who want movement options, who want to focus on these yielding strategies, they will need to then inhale. I say that in inverted commas because commas because it doesn't actually have to involve sucking more air in. It can just be you relaxing into it, letting the pelvic floor yield, and then you back down the bottom. And, and then you can focus on training your overcoming strategies from that. The same way sometimes you do jumps with a counter movement and some days you just want to do like a more of a compression strategy. You take away the counter movements. Got it. So this, this leads me to, and I think I've talked with Justin more about this, at least idea. So if I'm getting better at because uh, I want to talk about the idea of getting, when we get better at these things, what happens? Meaning, I think a lot of people are just like, oh, just get your squat up because a good athlete squats X, Y, Z relative to body yeah. weight. And I think that's, again, where I don't like the, and, and I would agree with you. Like, I think the thing that doesn't resonate is, is athletes have to squat, they have to hinge. It's, you think about all the lifts that the strength coach personally and emotionally is attached to is the variations the athlete gets rather than is what's actually happening with that canister, what's happening with the pelvis. Are they the PRs all it? come from the compression. The, the what comes from the compression? The, the personal records in the lifts all come from the compression strategies. Like at no point do you put three times body weight on your athlete's back and like just ride it down to the safeties. Oh, yeah. I just want to see how much you can yield with. And I'm not even saying that that's what we should do, but we just have to acknowledge that we're going to be really attracted to these compression strategies because they give us these big sexy numbers on the bar. But maybe you need to not worry about what kind of squat that your athlete can grind out just getting to parallel, but what kind of squat can your athlete absolutely sink, bounce their um, butt off their ankles and with a, like a real nice looking yielding strategy and then fly through that compression zone back up to expansion, not get pinned in that compression zone in the middle, sort of where they, where they all really slow down those bouncy people around parallel, trying to reascend that pelvic floor. Cause that's just them trying to like throw their guts back up off the pelvic floor so they can create compression. Whereas you'll notice people who can't do that, They'll just lean forward to unload their pelvic floor and then yep. hinge their way out of there. Because like I said, leaning forward gets the weight of your guts off that pelvic floor and makes it easier to sort of drive that exhalation strategy. Yeah, and that's, that's why falling forward is efficient propulsion. It's just you don't want to do that in a squatty context because we're not practicing falling forward there. And that's where what you just said I think explains really well what I've seen is that athletes, when they first start lifting, um, they're usually going to get like performance gain as long as their form is good they're not trying they're just kind of learning the technique they're not trying to crush numbers they're getting they're going to get a gain out of that for a little while and then there's this point where it's like they start their gains start to slow down and they start like oh i gotta still pr i gotta still lift more weight well yes at that point now what happens to lift more weight because you aren't engaging more you know i guess specific there's a lot of things happening right but the way i see it okay you're in a good position you're engaging some specific motor units you're getting a large you know global output cool but then like you hit that point and now to PR, you got to do something else. And that's where I feel like you start to see those compression strategies and unnecessary strategies really layer on themselves over time. Yeah. And I think that's what, what you're witnessing when you see those awesome results from a good strength training program is you're seeing the benefit of that athlete increasing their ability to compress without changing their starting point 
to someone who is generally more compressed because it's the laying down of more muscle tissue over time. Like that is compressive in nature. Even if you're doing an expansion strategy, just adding load to anything makes it more relatively compressive. And there's just a point where it's not you being like adapting in this program. You've adapted to that compressive yeah, load. To the, to the and weight. And that's to what the, we're trying to avoid. Yeah, exactly. to the bar just, crushing you. <laughs> sprinkle in the compression, but largely just really trying to increase the amount of stress that we can yield under, which is kind of, it sounds like an oxymoron because we're trying to like increase our ability to compress while still maintaining our expansion. But like, and, and that's why it is challenging because you're chasing this paradox but I think that is sort of athletic. That that really speaks to the problems that we all face in athletic development, right? There's so many of these little contradictions that we're all trying to live in the, the Goldilocks zone of. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about two units that Simply Faster now has out that are excellent for training data collection in measuring bar speeds, sprint metrics, limb speeds, and more. The first is the VMAX Pro. If you're interested in barbell tracking technology that is affordable for the individual athlete in the garage gym, but yet is accurate enough to be trusted by professional teams, then you might be interested in the VMAX Pro. The VMAX Pro is a tiny sensor that attaches to the barbell or even the body to help with lifting and jump training metrics. It'll give you immediate feedback for jumps, lifts, and even measure the motion of the bar in 3D. It includes a travel pouch and the associated app works on both Android and iOS devices, you can auto-regulate with precision with the VMAX Pro. The second unit is the Muscle Lab IMU. If you want to take your movement training to the next level, then the IMU is something you would definitely want to look into, as it's a pocket-sized sensor that can attach anywhere on the body and deliver research-grade motion real-time. With it, you can collect ground contact times during sprints, limb speeds for jumping and throwing, and even support return-to-play metrics. The sensor fuses with the rest of the Muscle Lab sensor system for even deeper insights. You can improve your movement data and get measurement that matters today with the Muscle Lab IMU unit. You can improve the depth of your workout metrics with these two pieces of technology. And if you're interested, you can head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Check out their online store where you can find these pieces and improve the depth of your training metrics today. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, this it. I feel like there is a lot going on. I think about I. I got to this point in my early twenties, mid twenties. Uh, it took me a while, a little trial and error, to figure this out. That, and like I'll go back to it simplistic, but you know, you'll hear, oh man. And I had a lot of my elite like sprinters and jumpers got up to a two times body weight squat, actually pretty quick and easily. And yeah. then I'm sitting here like, man, how come I can't? And 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 so what I kind of realize is like, look, like. Uh, an athlete with a 500 horsepower engine is going to be able to do 500 horsepower engine things without compressing themselves unnecessarily to get that. Versus if I'm going to, me personally, I'm going to try to squat that weight. I'm going to have to manipulate the heck out of my skeleton to get to what that, what that outcome goal would be. You, you don't seem like you've got good leverage for compressing your thorax. So like your knees come in a lot when you squat heavy, right? Oh yeah. So you probably find more IR distally because you're so bad at getting it proximally. Like you probably really struggle to ascend a diaphragm like really hard and aggressively or like maintain that overcoming action. So I reckon probably what gives you a bit of momentum to ascend your pelvic floor is the fact that you're so good at IR and pronation distally. And then that starts that from the ground up, driving all the your guts up and things like that. 
I yeah. could be completely wrong also, but that that would be my guess. <laughs> uh, yeah, I you're probably right. I mean, I, I I would take a little bit to unpack for me to understand like all the little you know. <laughs> I I get what you're saying. Uh, I know- I think the shin angles is going to be a good way of explaining the squat for you to like really connect it with sort of how you view compression and expansion, maybe. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off there. Yeah, no, that sounds good. I mean, maybe we could use me as an example. That's fine. I, I definitely, it helps me to learn. And I think I can also carry a good conversation based off some of these topics that I think are, because uh, I know we have a lot of terms here. And so I want to keep yeah. them like, I want to keep it pretty, um, you know, it's, as soon as I start, can I get, I want to make sure I don't get confused first and foremost. For people who aren't indoctrinated to be, there's nothing worse than like, with these new systems, the language, like, yeah. and it's an unfortunate part of it, like, because I know people just love to make up terms for the sake of making up terms. Yeah, yeah, I, um, it, it's, yeah, that's always the thing that gets me with the, like, once I have the terms, I'm good, but I'm, a, I'm actually a slow learner with terms and stuff like that for whatever reason, like new terms and different languages as well. But, uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, but I know, like, yeah, for you're me, just self-aware. I think we're all slow learners. Some people just think we're fast learners. Yeah, for for me, like, I'm actually. It's funny because I was a high jumper, but I actually have kind of a longer torso and short femurs and long shins. It's a very weird scenario. Um, <laughs> That's so and, and so I, I actually look like a swimmer, and I don't, you know. So, but somehow I was a good high jumper. I do have a narrow ISA. I was always a better deadlifter when I did have a short, like, powerlifting kind of training stint in my early 30s. My deadlift was actually my best lift. Um, I mean, I deadlift, I deadlift at 405, which is okay. It's not great. But my squat was only like 330 or 335 with, short again, short femurs. Like if you would yeah. look at me from the outside, you would say, oh, this guy should be a better squatter. But, I mean, I could just pull. Like pulling is so easy, and I never really knew why. So it's, you know, the the exhaled in the diaphragm. You're not – see, and that's the thing. You say you're not a good squatter. I say you're not a strong squatter. Because you're a good squatter, how I define a squat, which is your ability to yield. Does, does that sort of make sense? Yeah. It's like you, you have a real nice squat because you're not too compressed. But like like we just said, in that traditional weight room view of what a good squat is, whereas it's just viewed as how much can you stand back up with again, it is viewed as a bad squat. But I, I don't know if you agree with this. I would say your ability to yield is your strength as an athlete. So it kind of makes sense. It's like... Because no offense, either like 180 for someone who's as jumps as high as you, I would say is not a great deadlift. You know what I mean? So it's no, just no, like it's not, it was from, terrible. From, a, <laughs> from an ability to leverage a compression strategy, you're better at leveraging compression in a hinge context. But I, I look at you and your skeleton to me makes you a better squatter in the sense that we're talking about an ability to expand a thorax than deadlifter. Yeah. And so. I guess I like what you said with you're a good squatter, but you're not a strong squatter. And because I, I guess I look at that in the sense that I, um, my best, when I did high jump the year, I high jumped um, my, my PR seven feet or you know two fourteen. The next year I actually got better at squatting. Like I, my squat right. was up like, and I didn't do as well. And everything, it was actually yeah. like a slower contact. It was just, there was some other stuff that season, but it was, I was a different athlete fundamentally that year. And so, I mean, for what that's worth. You say you had a longer ground contact. Yeah, like, like, like the, like, just, just every step was a little bit, um, I feel like longer on the ground. Like, I wasn't quite like the bouncer. So, and what I see that is, as is, you've, you've expanded more. Like, because I see expansion as something that increases ground contact time. Because when we hit on the heels, like that's very expansive. You've got yeah. more time to push force into that ground. Versus if you are more compressed, 
you're naturally going to hit more on the ball of your foot and you're going to get through that whole foot roll sort of a, a lot quicker. It's going to be a more sort of compression-based jump. Just going back to your deadlift though, like are you the kind of person where when you fail a deadlift, it just stays glued to the floor? Yes, basically. Or one inch yeah. or maybe like a half inch off the ground. But yeah. that and Because exactly, that's what it is in that position. That's where you've got to be able to compress and like because that's the thing that you struggle with. Whereas for you, once you get it off the ground and you're moving, like you're sweet, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, easy. Yeah, because yeah. your your body just lives off momentum. <laughs> yep, I'm el- elastic city. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, and that's on it because I hear you and Jake, or guys like you and Jake, talk about like more muscular jumpers, and like I guess that's that sort of like wide maybe strategy. Yeah, I've actually started to realize this recently as I in a two leg in a running two leg jump so which is a very it's more rotational than people think like basically one leg comes down and then it's usually the right leg and then the left leg which is more the stiffer like leg i think due to our you know anatomy with the heart on one side and whatnot is usually that leg usually rotates around like a almost like a barn door swinging around and i found that people who are compressed a to p like i literally just figured this out it took me however many years but those compressed a to p people can't they just like can't do that skill. They have to jump off one leg or they do they like can't a two-leg rotate. jump. Yeah, they do a two-leg jump stop. Yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. And I've been trying to like, for the longest time, I'm trying to like coach people into this. And I think if you watch like a lot of elite jumpers, I think there's even some high-level jumpers that almost have like a jump stop type motion. And it's probably due to whatever their spinal rib cage restrictions were not. I mean, yeah. maybe there's some other things going on there too. But um, I don't know, it's just interesting to start to think about how someone's technique evolves based off of your compression. Can you rotate based off your rib cage and stuff like that? And usually the body's doing the best it can given what it has in front of it or yeah. what it can feel. So, Well, and, and that's it. I think the two strategies I see, I look at, like to look at it just from a pelvic floor perspective. Like it, that's just a trampoline for your guts. And like your guts probably weighs like a good 20 kilos, I imagine. And some people just have that constant overcoming exhalation compression strategy of the pelvic floor so like the the little yield that it does have when they push down into the ground then it just springs off quickly versus some some people are really good at accepting their guts into expanding Mm -hmm. that pelvic floor they really get that big stretch of the trampoline and that's what they leverage to then spring their guts up and sort of start driving that momentum got it Um, because that's what sort of makes sense to me. You know when you see athletes wind up in their counter movement to test their vert and they, like, they snap their arms down mm-hmm. and then just as they're about to turn around, their knees come in yes. and like that sort of IR adduction. So if we think about what those movements are doing up the chain, that will be ascending your pelvic floor when you drive those knees in. So you driving your knees in, that stops you from going down because it's turned your guts around. Your guts have turned around inside you already. And then behind that, you come up sort of with the hip extension and sort of follow through through from that. And that's sort of, in my eyes, I see a lot of good athletes, good yielding athletes sort of taking advantage of that strategy. Early, that's what I think I'm seeing anyway. Yeah, so that's, Pat. Uh, when Pat Davidson was on my podcast a while ago, he was talking about that. So with me, <laughs> I'm always like the experimental like, you know, figure for these these things. But when I was squatting in high school, naturally, like naturally my squat, like without being, our coach didn't coach us. It was just, here's a bar and go, you know, do some squats. <laughs> and and, yeah. and I, I was, 
squatting, again, not a lot of weight, like, you know, mid 200s. But when I started to get heavy, when the bar started to get heavy, I noticed that my knees would really start coming in. And I would go to the balls yeah. of my feet, knees in to get to about parallel, I guess, probably parallel. Yeah. And I don't know, but it wasn't, but it was actually, I remember. I was jumping well, like off to like my two foot vertical was actually going pretty good. And then when I stopped squatting, my one foot came up. But then I remember when my mid 20s, I decided to squat the official NSCA way or whatever was in the book. <laughs> and I put my knees out and I pushed through my heels. I don't think that said push through heels in the book. Like a good boy. It. Like a good boy was supposed to. Yeah. And then I noticed that I, it, I started to not get the, the, the transfer that I did earlier on. And then Pat was saying like the knees in actually – it's like fits with the strategy maybe I'm already using in jumping, which is to like pinch off the pelvic floor so it can the guts can bounce. Absolutely, off of it. it's it's so proximal and there's so much pressure that's being handled in there. Like I really do think that everything else from the limbs comes secondary. Like it really is just about managing all the pressure in here. Like I think from a sensory perspective, our feet are extraordinarily important. So like I'm not. 100% all in on proximal to distal, but like I just, I, especially the pelvic floor, I think people are sold on breathing, people are sold on the diaphragm and things like that, but I think the pelvic floor is something we only look at when athletes are peeing their pants. Um, and I just, or, or just for females, it's sort of seen as something that's important, but I just think it's going to be the new thing that once people start actually looking at this thing and how it works, like a trampoline for your guts, like that's that's huge. Oh yeah. Anyway. Oh yeah. The highest jumpers have, I mean, if you don't have a trampoline, you got to use something else like, and you know, it's not going to yeah. be as fast off the ground. So, and I think not being able to see it is what scares a lot of people off. Mm-hmm. Or, or I think men in general, like the male, the strength conditioning industry is dominated mm-hmm. by males. So I think they feel weird talking about pelvic floor stuff, but now that we're becoming so much more educated about the diaphragm, the benefit of all this stuff is like, there's such a reciprocal relationship between the pelvic floor or the pelvic diaphragm as some people call it and the thoracic diaphragm that you can make a lot of really good assumptions of what's going on at the pelvic floor based off what you see at the rib cage yes uh, yeah so and based off and also the foot sorry uh, yeah um so based off of like the idea of the squat pattern and the hinge pattern and then what we just talked about in the sense of uh, getting strong working until you find that point that an athlete is just layering on compression to get better um, yeah. what's your take on, let's say I just, let's say I want to jump higher and I don't use a lot of knee bend when I jump and I'm in the weight room. Uh, and how am I, how are you looking at me in light of those two strategies? Um, the, the you know, pel- pelvis descending straight down versus hips back and what the pelvis floor, pelvic floor obviously needs to do, which is a rebounding. Um, how, what are your yeah. thoughts on how I would manage that in the weight room setting? Okay. So it depends on like what you are versus what you've tried to turn yourself into in my opinion because we've discussed how both strategies can work and i think for most people you just want to find not what they've tried to turn themselves into but what they were meant to be from the get-go so say i've got you right and you're like i've lost my spring and if i look at you most people when they're compensated the it's we go always go proximal and like you'll probably seem a bit more posteriorly compressed and I'm looking at this guy, Joel, and I'm like, he's told me he's always been like a springy guy. He's never been a weight room hero. I'm looking at his skeleton is telling me the same story, that this is a guy who just thrives off rotation, expansion, movement options, yielding strategies. 
I'm going to push you back into those yielding strategies. And I'm going to be very, very careful about the amount of load I put on you because as soon as I put load on you, you're not going to be able to handle it and you're instantly going to like over compress and probably compress parts of your body that we're not trying to compress, like trying to compress uh, your pelvis, like hip extension, whereas you probably just compress your back or like something that you've managed to get really strong or something like that. Um, and then looking at Jake Tura, I don't know if he, he's a bit of a muscular guy. I'm not sure that he is a, he probably is a wide infrasternal angle. So someone like him, you, you may benefit to an extent from doubling down on those compression strategies, hmm. right? It is someone who is designed to compress, letting compress. It's more there where you just, every now and then you'll notice those people go too far. They push themselves too far and you sprinkle in a little expansion just to pull them back and be like, I need to give you something to compress. So for an expansion person, just trying to drive honestly as much expansion as possible. If they seem like really weak or undersized, yes, you are going to have to entertain more compressive strategies. Um, but even in the long run, like you can build a lot of strength with these expansion strategies. It's just that they more promote yielding. But like I said, if you're moving weight, that's still compressive in nature. So like I said, it's all relative. Um, yeah, do, does that seem... Am I speaking clearly? Sometimes yes. I ramble on, uh, no, on a it, few tangents. But like acknowledge what they are, what direction they're heading in, and then act accordingly based off that. Yeah, so basically I have athletes come in. Let's say I have an athlete who wants to be fast. Now I'm a sprinter or everyone wants to be faster, right? Like that's, you know, track, yeah. whatever. Uh, and they're a narrow ISA and they're uh, expanded person. So they're like just more naturally bouncy. And I think this fits with a lot of like prior guests. Hey, you have a muscular sprinter, an elastic sprinter, a, a this sprinter. Yeah. And they, and the elastic sprinters tend to do better with more plyometrics and bouncy stuff and rhythmic running and less weightlifting. And so it's almost like this is where this meets too. It's like, hey, if I don't know what someone is, I could just start by measuring their infrasternal angle too and say, hey, like what, you know, so... What you're saying is so someone like me, and I will say this too, is one of the best training years I had was in my mid-20s, and I hurt my back being a dumbass with squats. Again, I was not I was just trying to chase up my, my weak numbers, just trying to get that squat going, yeah. tweak my back <laughs> in the right lower right SI, typically AIC stuff, right? And um, then I had to come back with it like I, I wanted to train. So I came back from that injury doing just like 505 tempos, 404 tempos, 204 tempos with like 95 pounds, so 40 kilos, like yeah. nothing. Yeah, and I, relatively way more expansion dominant, way more yielding, like emphasize the yielding. Yeah, and I, and I come back and I set a one-inch personal lifetime pair on standing vertical jump. It is standing vertical, so it's not like being reactive, but I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like, And so it's like I didn't touch more than 115 that last like month or whatever. And and But as yeah. I was reading you know, Pat's book and what you're saying, I'm like, I just, it's like you can't, you're not going to compress to lift that 95 pounds at 115. It's just, nah, it's all. Not nearly to the same degree. No, it's just all yielding. and and But so that's where you work the yielding too. That's and that's the interesting part that I maybe because of the things that you mentioned with me, I, I was aware that you know, I'm more expanded, elastic, but the yielding thing intrigues me, and I can rotate. I was a javelin thrower too, uh, <laughs> so the interesting, interesting, uh, yeah, like my um, weird type of athlete I was. High well, and that's javelin. such an inhalation yeah. movement, like uh, flexion, abduction, external rotation, and then having to run like that. Like <laughs> that was my the, jam. The strategies that you you're juggling there is insane. Yeah, it's... only if you think about it. <laughs> No, I, I wasn't thinking about it at all. Yeah. It's like, I just know I wish I was faster, but I can jump high, I can yeah. throw the javelin real far. So, but, uh, yeah. 
So what was I getting? Oh, but I guess that I could yield. And so another thing that I have done in my training that I have found helpful, and it's like Dan John actually said this um, on a podcast a long time ago on the show. It basically said, if you're not built to squat, uh, basically probably, probably neuro ISA, he said, don't do under, uh, generally probably don't try to do, go under sets of 10 and squat because probably because you'll right. do too much weight and you will over compress to try to get the weight. And I've just found anecdotally throughout my own, especially in my 30s, I found this more. But and even honestly, even younger, um, doing higher rep like sets of squats was good for me. And eventually, that translated into just doing like one set of 12 front squats, and that was my squat workout. And so that was, and yeah. it was all the way down, you know, just um, which isn't specific from where the compression hits, but I don't know, just didn't hurt me. So <laughs> maybe that has something to do yeah. with the eccentric and the yielding element of it. And you, there's so many ways you can get it. Like you, you drove a more expansion strategy by stripping the weight back. You can chase heavy weights to an ex- extent while driving a yielding strategy. Um, you just have to stack the deck more to promote that. So really elevating the heels because elevating the heels is going to put them into more mm-hmm. inhalation and more sort of yielding concepts. going to give you more range to sort of bend down into it. So you can, you can do it by chasing higher reps with not so much load. You can do it from a biomechanical perspective. It's, you've got so many tools here to drive more expansion or more compression in any context, um, depending on how you're looking to set it up. Cool. I, so, I, like, I, so for someone who isn't built to squat, like you say, like doing traditional heavy squats with them with like feet flat on the ground, they're going to have to compress themselves to try to turn that thing into a deadlift mm-hmm. um, versus elevating their heels, having their hands out in front of it. Yes. You're going to give them a lot more leverage to yield. So they're not going to have to compensate on top of that with all this added compression. And they're going to be able to work on genuinely just trying to shoot those guts up vertically rather than just trying to flip them off the, out the front. Yeah. One of my, um, so to speak, one of my favorite training movements for me is uh, a clean, a squat clean from blocks with actually stuff under my heels. So I, I, I yeah. love that. That's like one of my favorite things. <laughs> Yeah, and I think weightlifting as well, like it's, you know, we go through these cycles of like loving it or hating it for sports performance, but like I I see a lot of like similar sort of qualities there. It's like we've got so many yielding and overcoming actions in the weightlifting movements all sort of rolled into one, which um, can be very noisy from a programming perspective, but there's an abundance of tools there, I think, in weightlifting. Yeah. All right. So if I get an athlete and they want to, you know, they want to sprint faster, jump or whatever, and they're more of a inhale person. So a wide infrasternal angle basically I just kind of feed more of that engine. Like that athlete can be compressed more like they can stand some, yeah. comp- but then how do I tell when, I mean, I think it's easy. Like, like someone like me, I'm going to start getting compressed quickly. Maybe they're you just start seeing contact times increase or, or maybe you see it show up in their squatting with their low back compressing first. But how do you, we, you mentioned a little bit, but how do you like determine, okay, wow, now you're, you're really starting to use compressive strategies to tack on pounds to the bar at this point. Like what, what are some rules of thumb to, to just navigate the process, like the day-by-day process of when do we add weight? What am I oh. trying to get this athlete to think of and, and those types of things? So many different things. Cause you can talk about like in the short term and the long term. So like even just short term talking about in the set, if you're doing squats and like you're going down, then up, down, then up down and up and then usually about rep seven depending on the intensity that you're working at hips go down and back and then up Ah. at that point you're probably no longer driving a yielding strategy 
That doesn't mean you have to rack the bar. You just have to know that you're probably no longer driving a yielding strategy at the pelvic floor. So you set halfway has turned into something else. Over the longer term, if it's just at the point where the athlete starts looking different when they're doing the thing that they actually need to do, you've compressed them too much. They no longer have the requisite movement options to express what they need to express compression through the spaces that they need to compress. So you need to expand them to give them movement options. With with your narrow, sorry, with your wide muscular driven athletes. As long as they're feeling good, just keep compressing them. You can keep compressing them, letting them lean into their strengths, provided they maintain the movement options. And I, I usually find that they can tolerate a fair bit of compression. Like the, the, the expanded people are real easy to compress and that they lose movement options quickly, like they seem more sensitive, hmm. whereas the compressed people do seem a little bit more like you can be much more ham-fisted. Like some of the some of the ways I go for expansion, even when I do expand my compressed guys, like they're the people where you could slip back into that paradox of trying to drive an expansion strategy, but trying to use the, a shit ton of weight, like having them just hold on to the pull-up bar and stuff like that for like as long as they can and like, or, you know, even strapping weight to their feet and things like that. So even then, like you always sort of, in this paradox but yeah so that's sort of an intraset sort of way you can look at it and then like a intra training cycle where you can look at it and be like okay this person's lost movement options let's go into a more expansion dominant training cycle yeah i i makes me think too about um i don't know if it, you can maybe this is just a shortcut uh, but i uh it was i think a power after adam glass and i think i mentioned this on the show um before maybe at some point but dave Dela, now i'm probably saying his last name wrong dave delanav or i'm probably gonna <laughs> i could spell it but anyways he was talking about he's got a biofeedback based uh deadlift uh program where like you do a deadlift and you then do like a toe touch or arm raise behind your head and you check range of motion and you use that as your guide to see when your body right. went into threat like, and if you do a set and you add weight and you go and you touch your toes after that set and it, the range decreased, then your brain, it's almost like your movement options it's got staying decreased. staying with you. Yeah. And so I wonder if that almost would be a way to check your eye as a coach in the sense of, and I, cause I, I did that program for a little while and I found like the Jefferson deadlift was, uh, actually my best in terms of not like I could keep doing toe touches with the Jefferson. I mean, it's cause I'm like rotate, you know, I could rotate. So my body wants to yeah. rotate. Let's do this Jefferson deadlift. And well, that's just a big ER in the back of the ribcage. It's just a big yield. <laughs> I I have to lift with you sometime. You, you can explain this. I, I When I, the world I, opens up, I'm coming over to the US. Yeah. Um, I'll see if I can drag my brother. And I'm coming to train with you, Grant Fowler. I'm going to swing by Pat Davidson's gym. I got a big tour of the States I need to do. <laughs> please, just please go, do. Just like, go crush weights with everyone. Yeah, well, it crush, it, it, based off my lifts, I don't know if it's going to be crushing weights, but maybe we'll, we'll do what we can. Um, Dude, I'm in the same boat as you. Some of the strong people that are following me now, it's made me not want to post my own lifts. I'm like, you guys not watch? I want to upload a deadlift. Yeah, I mean, you're doing pretty good, man. I, But I, uh, I'm almost going to get off track with what I was going to ask you. I, um, Let's see. Oh, yeah. I, but the, the Jefferson deadlift, I found that when it was so minute for me, like I, I, and it's taken me years to really get sensitive to what my body's doing. But I remember when I just, I would just put on like 10 more pounds and then I'd do the lift, couple reps, put it down and I would decrease in range. And I felt like yeah. literally the description of what I did to make myself decrease was a shift. My hips shifted, my low back shifted like a millimeter. That was it. And I yeah. would have never noticed it. No one would have noticed it, but it's almost like 
when the body's shifting the way it's not supposed to, it's like the brain or you're compressing maybe in your brain more than you should. The brain doesn't like it. And it says, okay, like, and so I don't know. I mean, it would be inter- an interesting test with people of different um, infrastructural angles and compression levels to see how much one, you know, a person like me could tolerate. Should I be doing like two sets Absolutely. of deadlift and then I couldn't touch yeah. my toes as well. And then the other person's like just crushing, adding weight and adding weight and adding weight. And I'd be interesting to see. Yeah, tolerance is such a big thing because I'm yeah measuring like degrees of freedom lost in a weekly training cycle with each person doing yeah. X amount of strength training, and yeah, measuring a wide versus narrow response to that would be heaps cool. Yeah, I've been. I mean, I've been just. I again, I, we're always biased by our own you know stuff, and so I've always been biased towards. All right, let's just definitely go on the lighter side for everybody, yeah. and <laughs> you know, just don't want to push it, and we don't, you know. We, and but there are athletes who can push it a little bit more, based off what you're saying. And I I know there's you know a lot of athletes are like that, and so it's good to it's good to the hedge. I think the hedge is in the weight room chasing expansion because you've got weight that's going to compress you anyway. So the hedge, I think, if you're unsure what to do, something is throw a bit of weight on someone and drive an expansion strategy. You're going to get the strength training benefits, but you're not going to sort of take away uh, too many yielding or movement options expansion strategy or was that, is that like jumps or is that like what you know, expansion strategy is the, the inhalation strategy the squat strategy the yielding sort of strategy oh, okay yeah gotcha so compression deadlift expansion is like a deep deep squat yeah, expansion strategy. is vertical translation of the pelvis oh sorry hip flexion abduction external rotation all those sorts of things got it okay cool yeah. uh all right so you mentioned um posterior chain and i think we'd have time to hit on this briefly so i think this kind of fits with what we're talking about but uh, you had mentioned before the show i don't even know if i was had this on the list to ask you but i think this would be a nice transition but you've mentioned that posterior chain training isn't we we i think we we our terminal i think our intentions are good but when we actually lay our instructions down we could be setting athletes back so tell me what you yeah. think about training training the posterior chain what have we done to it as an industry and what is the best way to go about that like, I think we're always training our posterior chain um, because humans, especially more sedentary humans, we just all fall into that posture of sort of falling forward more. And like, so we're, we're, we've got this thing where we're chronically uh, training our posterior chain. And I think people go in and they do like acute posterior chain training and they feel a benefit from that. But I don't think the benefit is felt from training the posterior chain. I think it's just felt from the variability of doing something that was sort of like more chronic and low load and then some acute high load. Whereas I think what is more missing, you know, David Graham, I know you talk to him a lot. He's a big fan of giving people what they're missing, especially when they're feeling bad. So just trying to focus a little bit more on that um, and getting people to fall backwards and, and, and train the opposite almost. Um, and that doesn't switch the posterior chain off. It just changes sort of how it's recruited. Because I think when people are falling forward, pelvis is in that anterior tilt, like you're training back through a shortened position and then your hamstrings through a lengthened position chronically. So even like the idea of like always using that posterior chain, it's like we're usually recruiting segments of that posterior chain in completely opposing strategies uh, as well so that's why i find it just like a not the most clear or useful way of categorizing 
um, your exercises, you know, doing anterior chain or posterior chain focus. Like I say, I think you just, you cover it all a bit more comprehensively and you don't treat the human body like a piece of paper if you more just go expansion compression, not anterior posterior like i think that sort of falls into that thinking of the whole like two to one push pull ratios and Mm -hmm. all that nonsense where like maybe it's not even that the words are bad but we've just thrown so much mud on top of them that it's nice to move across to different language where we've got these you know shiny new fresh terms which can be a little bit distracting but i also think there's a good side to that because like i said they don't have all this baggage of things we've laid onto like what is a squat and sort of what is the posterior chain and you know what is a hinge and all that stuff yeah and i know you were saying before the show like if we want i mean it it is like a chicken or the egg thing um and i I always look at like what's the source like i was talking about the athletes who can easily squat double body weight well they just have a lot of them just have tremendous neuromuscular outputs you know it's not even as much a little bit of it's their structure but they're just also wired too and so someone who doesn't have the a like someone who doesn't have adequate hamstrings, glute, you know, whatever. Well, it's funny because if your calves are too big, you might be messed up. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. My calves are huge, FYI. My <laughs> hamstrings do no work. <laughs> yeah, I feel like because, you know, we say like, I fear the person who's got like, you know, the lats and the glutes and the hamstrings. The calves. But yeah, a lot of people are going to have, yeah, pairs. Like my glutes and my calves are pretty good, but my hamstrings need a lot of help. And my back is yeah. super like, my low back is super tight and compressed and, you know, my lats are probably like... Oh, the idea yeah. that back training can't get you in trouble because that was the narrative that I was bought into. Yeah. It was it was just seen as this ultimate hedge. Like no matter what your strength training program looks like, it will be as good or better if you just throw in more posterior chain work. Can't <laughs> go wrong, right? Strong back. But then you get all these people where like, their lats have squeezed all the air out of the back of their rib cage, and then they have absolutely no ability to rotate because they can't expand either side of the back of their rib cage. They cannot get their arms above their head because, again, you need air in the back of the rib cage to give your lats a fulcrum to lengthen over. It's um, you can get yourself into a lot of bother by emphasizing the posterior chain and like especially all the things that ride along with it, like downward rotation of the scaps and things like that. Because again, downward rotation of the scaps, we consider that an exhalation or compression movement. And you can see that because it like it's all your lats just squeeze all the air out of your back and you go into that extended posture. But then, you know, where you can get those lats lengthened again, open up the back of that rib cage, then you'll notice people can rotate and people can get their arms up above their head, which is, as we know, like really important for a whole bunch of different sports. And that's, um, it's almost like that's where that, it's almost like the layers of the industry are, we're getting closer and closer to the core of things as we're going along. Like before it was the muscles yeah. and now at least we're looking at the bones and pressures and how that impacts what we see yeah. with the muscles. And the so- bones are the constraints for like the pressure system to flow through. Like they direct all the pressure. I think it was Pat Davidson that sort of used that explanation, which I thought was really good. Yeah, I, I mean, and I, I'm very like, I, I love this point because I am the epitome of someone who in my, I mean, again, I, I set my high jump PR when I was 21, which is like, so <laughs> I should have said it when I was 25 or 28, but what happened to me is I love what I've been weightlifting since I was 12. And it's like, I just, I, my back gains muscle so easily, like so easily by far my most like developed, you know, like body part. And I think a lot of it's just because it's the lifts that I was the best at. I was the best at deadlifting and even Olympic lifts. I was a really strong polar and yeah. I am in a lot of anterior tilts. So I would get a lot of like low back spinal um, compression to like facilitate stuff, but that did not help my elastic abilities and it's extra weight to throw up in the air. So, I mean, yes. I did jump, 
I jump pretty well in my mid. I mean, but the jumper I was when I was 26, I mean, I was jumping 610. So like two meters, 10, almost two, 209 when I was I'm almost there, but it was like, I was five kilos more in weight. I was, it was uglier. It was, I mean, my standing vertical was better. Like if I was a football player, I would have probably been more fearsome on the football field, but yeah. that little ability Hard to rotate out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That little ability was just, I, you know, it, it was lost. And so I feel like my I didn't do right by my posterior chain training. So I'll just, I'll ask you this question, and and this is what would be coming, and rightfully so is okay. Well, I have an athlete who's quad dominant. Like I have an athlete who doesn't yeah. activate their you know whatever in the posterior chain very well. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of you know different things can be going on back there. But what's your thoughts on how does an athlete become more quad dominant, knee dominant, developing quads too much? And then how do you start to steer them in the other direction rather than just saying, oh, we'll just go hit some hamstring curls and some reverse glute ham and stuff like that? Yeah, it's just about controlling the center of mass. Like I think we've all seen in a textbook or on those skeleton models, like the shape that a rib cage should be. You've got these alternating curves up your back uh, and you've got this It's not shaped like a Coke can, but it's generally round from all the sides. And like what you'll notice is that people who've done a lot of activity or not enough activity, the shape of that changes. You start to lose the curves and stuff like that. And that is going to echo throughout the body distally, right? So like you just don't have a hope in getting your hamstrings to be where you want them to be at the right time unless you have that right shape proximally to orient it all around does that make sense like if you've really flattened out that back it can't rock around through space so easily it kind of just like folds in different directions so if you can just respect that proximal structure for what it is create this put your skeleton in a position that just directs airflow and pressure evenly that is going to help you maintain all your movement options. And then the question of training your hamstrings is a really simple one to answer. It's just like, well, sometimes train them in a long position, sometimes train them in a short position, sometimes train them slow, sometimes train them fast. Um, and just we people are always trying to look for these eureka moments with hamstrings. Like you just do this for hamstrings and then you're sweet. And it's just like the answer has always been do everything for your hamstrings. But due to limitations and compensations at our more proximal structures, people are unable to genuinely train their hamstrings through all these positions. Yeah, like a Nordic hamstring is a go-to, and I, I believe I believe in Nordics, but I also seen a lot Me of too. yeah, <laughs> I've seen a lot of athletes basically make a Nordic a low back a low back curl, you know, like yes. drive compression low back and then just hang on for dear life. And, and it's actually, meant to be eccentric, right? But people cannot handle the yielding action or the expansion of the hamstring. So they compress something upstairs mm-hmm. to help manage the pressure. So I'm like, that's to me like a low bar back squat when you're doing a Nordic like that. It's like we, we took this beautiful expansion and yielding strategy and you just compressed the hell out of it. So it's not that it's bad, but it's like there was so much potential to head in a direction there and you managed to sort of stay in no man's land a little bit. Yeah. I know we're getting some lengthening of sarcomeres and yada yada yada, but you know, <laughs> I uh, yeah, we there was the the Nordboard team came in uh, back when I was at Cal. They came in for a little bit and just testing stuff out. And I I, I hadn't used it before. I tested it 
out and I crushed it actually. I crushed that Nordboard test. And I, but yeah. I swear it's probably because I was really good at like at, uh, compressing my low back. I know it. I'm like, my oh, hamstrings yeah. are not that strong. I think I just, <laughs> just crushed that. Like, and I, I don't know, like I'm good at connecting my body and just use it, compensating and using those things. I mean, I actually, I don't have many hamstring issues for what it's worth either. So I'm not saying it's like, you know, I, I think what they're doing is probably good, but um, I yeah. mean, I haven't done, seen any research. So it seems good. Um, but you know, it was just interesting to me how many people I've seen who utilize that strategy with that movement. Yeah. So I, I and that's it. the thing as well. Like, I think we talked about how compression, there's a lot of baggage with that word. And like, I don't know about you, but I feel like compensation gets a similar sort of rap, but it's just like, okay. So like the, com- the compensation strategy is like what kind of ruined your expansion strategy and, um, and made all this compression on top of it. But the other side of looking at it is it allowed you to have all this output. So like, the idea of a compensation is that there is a reward for the thing you exchange for it. So it's just like making sure you're getting a good deal for your compensations. Yeah, I wonder too. I mean, I was just doing sprints today and I just like, again, the more aware you are of your body that, you know, and and I, it's like I can feel compared to, I think if I was playing a team sport where everything's on autopilot, but if just running like 150s and 200s and I can literally like feel myself trying to grip my toes a little bit to push a little further each stride. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, this is not normal. I think I'm just like, you know, it's like you realize that you're kind of compensating a little bit to artificially increase your stride length and stuff like that. For people like you, especially, are you familiar with the phases of propulsion? How it's like ER, IR, ER, yeah. like late propulsion with a expanded axial skeleton obviously that biases you into ER and then you like to be on the balls of your feet. And so like you're probably constantly in that sort of toe off position, mm-hmm. which is that sort of like concentric ER. So like that's sort of how somebody, some people do find like a sneaky sort of compression strategy over the top of that overall inhaled skeleton and stuff. I've, I've heard, um, like everyone like everyone in pat's book he talks about davidson's like everyone compensates your grandma compensates usain bolt compensates like there's all yes and they're very different. i, I yeah. like that because i do i do think it's easy to like especially the more you know about this stuff it's like oh you're doing this compensation strategy and I, yeah. maybe it is good to come around full circle and be like, look like everyone does a compensation it's just i think to know when and how that compensation is gonna reduce produce results that aren't very helpful for you is a really valuable skill yeah. And it all comes back to our insecurity. Like, I think people are like, oh, you're compensating. And instantly, even I'm like, no, don't say that. But I'm like, oh, wait, all right. Am I getting a good compensation here? Like, you've just got to have that, like, try to not have a knee jerk. We all need to try to not have a knee jerk reaction to these words and try to be more calm and try to just see the words and the joint actions that they describe just for what they are, I guess. Yeah. And so back with the hamstring, cause I do want to kind of close this out is I, I, I think about, maybe I'll use me as an example. And a lot of people are in this boat, people who have a lot of like low back compressive, like they really round their low back out to do like a hinge. And does that rounding where it, it's almost like a seesaw, it's almost like on one side's your low back on the other side, the pelvis is your hamstrings. And if you're tipped towards your low back, like your low back is going to develop and your hamstrings won't as much. Is it kind of like as simple as that or Ooh. Those people are probably unable to expand at that area of the body. So they're just expanding all through the lower back. Okay. You know what I mean? Because they're trying to expand their pelvis. They're not getting it as much as they want. So it's just all expanding and externally rotating through the lower back and the lower rib cage. Got it. So that's why someone who is like elastic, highly um, like just like a bouncing ball, 
that where they're going to get it's easy for them to expand there yeah it's that's just yeah it's easy for you to expand in the hinge in the low back versus being able to really fill the pelvis out all the way at the bottom and then get the hamstrings more involved because it's it's a lot of coordination to keep that pelvis over the pelvic diaphragm and drive those guts down into it to expand the pelvis that's what drives the expansion just your guts sitting in there whereas like yeah a lot of the time People can't handle that pressure because your body just wants to stop you from falling over and peeing your pants. And I think a lot of people don't realize that a lot of their posture is just their body trying to make them not pee their pants. So they're just like, oh, this guts is a lot of work to hold on the pelvic floor. I'm just going to flip it out the front of my pelvis and like, ah, I don't have to manage that pressure anymore. I'll just wail on my back. I I remember one of the um, throwers I used to work with when I was a strength coach um, back at Cal. It was one of the first years I was there. And this guy was like, I mean, this guy was like a fire plug. Like he was like six foot, barely over 200 pounds and threw like 62 feet or really far. And he, I was jealous because he'd do squats, back squats and be like, oh man, my hamstrings are so sore from those squats. I was like, I wish yeah. mine were. Yeah, I, I wish. I wish it was like not my quads and my low back, my back achy and all that stuff. Like so that so in that situation, someone who does squat or back squat and feels their hammies, they're they're able to really expand space in their pelvis all the way down. Well, and like the amount of work your hamstrings, because your hamstrings when you're right around parallel in that squat, I bet this guy wasn't going crazy deep. Like no. the hamstrings are trying to pull that pelvis into extension and ascend that pelvic floor and throw the guts up off it. Like they're a part of that sort of system as well. So it's, it's crazy when you can keep your pelvis under you and get down to halfway in that squat, how much people will feel those like inferior glute fibers and proximal hamstring and stuff like that. Gotcha. Are you, I mean, does everyone have the capacity to, to feel hamstrings like that in squat or only people who are wider ISA is more likely than not? You will, you will have to elevate heels for a lot of people. Oh, gotcha. So, sorry, just squatting like with your body weight, absolutely not. It's going to be of really course. hard for a lot of people to manage that position. But with heel wedges, just open up everything. You know what I mean? Like people are falling forward. You just make them fall forward even more. And then they're like, whoa. And they yeah. react to it and they pull themselves back. Like when it comes to just pushing and pulling people forwards or backwards, the heel wedges just open up all the possibilities. Yeah. I, I mean, I know we could talk about this forever. I mean, and the heel wedge stuff has been a huge game changer for me, but I, I know we're out of time for the day. I guess it just flew by, but thank you so much for taking so time good. to answer my questions and analyze me. So I, I appreciate it, man. I, I appreciate you. Like I, I hate the way that we all get pushed to sort of stay in our lanes uh, in this SNC and fitness realm. And I get sick of talking. I love talking to powerlifters and stuff like that. Anyone who will sort of entertain my opinions, but I'm so thankful that some one from outside the strength sports space has wanted to have these chats because I benefit from it as well. It's, it's really nice to sort of hear some different thoughts and perspectives and yeah, absolute honor to be invited on the show. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Yeah. That, that intermixing a different, you know, jumping track and powerlifting and the, you know, just good conversation between, I think there's so much good that comes out of it. So it was really great talking to you. Thanks for tuning in for another show. Glad to have you guys here. And uh, man, that was a fun show with a lot of in-depth information. I think I might have set a record in my note-taking and show notes. So be sure to check those out as well. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, you can head over to um, you can head over to iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to, and leave us a rating or review. I'd really appreciate it. We'll see you guys next week with another great guest. <laughs>